We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. After 140 plus editions, it's possible to gather some themes together for how our witnesses stay calm when faced with adversity, keep grounded and find meaning. They focus on the present moment. They find refuge in nature. They get in touch with their inner creativity. They have a daily or at least regular practice of some description. And they have some kind of relationship with something bigger and more powerful than themselves. Today, I have a witness who's going to combine all these themes. Clark Strand is a former Zen Buddhist monk and the author of the classic book Seeds from a Birch Tree, writing haiku and The Spiritual Journey, which has a new 25th anniversary edition. I heard Clark speak just under a year ago and I've taken up his challenge to write a haiku, which is a sort of short Japanese poem, on a daily basis, a goal that I've sort of succeeded in. Today is special. I get a chance to meet Clark and reflect on almost a year of haiku and how it has changed me. But before we get on to all of that, I think you better probably explain to us what a haiku is. Thanks, Andrew. Well, I'm very happy to be here, and I'm impressed that you took up the uh, challenge of writing a haiku for a year. That's a wonderful practice. If you really stick with it, it really does change the way you look at the world. So a haiku is the shortest form of poetry in the world, just 17 syllables. Traditionally, a haiku is divided into three lines of five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables. There's usually a pause somewhere in the poem, or maybe a pregnant pause, you know, a feeling of continuation at the end of the poem. And there is nearly always a reference to the season, the passing season. You know, the mention of a a seasonal bird or flower or snowflakes, something to that effect. And a poet will capture a moment from life in 17 syllables, but it's a moment that has some significance that the poet doesn't normally explain in the poem because there isn't room for that, but rather presents to the reader in such a way that the reader can grasp it for themselves. So, you know, haiku is roughly about a thousand years old. People, you know, have been gathering together to write these poems because it really is a very social art form, right? People have been gathering together to write these poems for a thousand years. And in the beginning, what happened was a person would write what was called a hoku or an opening verse. So they would write a verse, five, seven, five syllables for a total of 17 with a reference to the season that was usually about the place where they had gathered. So it was a kind of a tribute to the natural beauty or the history of that place. Another poet would come along and would write a link to that verse that played off of it in some way, giving a slight twist or turn to its meaning. And then another poet would come and add a link to that verse. So the result was a poem of sometimes a 100 verses long with anywhere from three to maybe 10 or 12 poets who got together to perform something that was a little bit more like improvisational jazz than it was poetry. (laughs) Because it's very collaborative, right? It's very social. It certainly favored cleverness and wit. But as time went on, people began to discover that they could do things with these links and playing off one another's poems that was impossible just by writing a poem of their own. And so what evolved was this sense that poetry is something that happens in the space between people. It isn't necessarily something that happens in the poet's mind, but it happened in the space between the poet and the reader. Reader of a haiku really completes the meaning of a haiku. So eventually that opening poem became its own animal, became its own thing toward the end of the 19th century. And at that point, haiku became something that anyone could write. People could use it as a sort of a daily practice. They could use it as a diary. They could use it as a way of becoming more intimate with nature and give them the feeling of following the seasons of the year from one day to the next. 
So haiku became many things at that point, and it began to travel. It traveled beyond the shores of Japan. It traveled to virtually every major language in the world today and many smaller languages spoken by fewer people. It's now written in over 190 countries around the world, and it's the most famous form of poetry in history, written by more people than any other verse form. Now, lots of people listening to this podcast are going to think, writing poetry, it's not for me. I hated poetry at school. I wasn't any good. Perhaps you should explain why they should have an open mind and not switch off. Well, I think that there's much to be learned from poetry in general, longer forms of poetry, right? I don't think people should feel too intimidated by poetry. If a, if a poem feels too difficult or obscure, or like the poet hasn't worked hard enough to include the reader in his or her experience, then, you know, you just put set that poem or that poet aside. I mean, life's too short. Find somebody who speaks to you and, you know, and dive into that poet's work. But I think haiku is a very different kind of verse form. It's so accessible. It's so simple. I started writing haiku in the mid-1970s and started teaching actively around 1990. And I worked with all kinds of people. I taught kindergartners how to write haiku. Children who couldn't yet write, didn't know their letters or words and couldn't spell yet. But what would happen is I would go out I would take them out into the playground or a nearby park or something like that with their teacher. And I would ask them to notice what was happening around them and to talk to me about it. You know, they could count typically by that age. So I would begin to count off the syllables of what they were saying. And I would say, oh, that's a good first line. And oh, that's a good second line. Oh, that's a good third line. Look, you've you've written a haiku. And haiku very much favors a kind of a child mind. We all are born with that. And if we're lucky, we don't really lose it. That sense of wonder, right, at the natural world, at the beauty, at the strange kind of frisson that develops out of certain moments of life where we, we feel like there's something happening and we can almost describe it or name it or intuit it. Really, the only way to capture moments like that, sort of uncanny moments, is really with poetry. So we begin to learn that just by counting on our fingers, everyone can do that and everyone can count syllables. We begin to capture certain moments in the flow of life and set them down as haiku. Haiku are mimetic, which means that we learn to write them by reading them. So to read a haiku and to enjoy it is to experience an invitation to write one of our own. That's how people start writing haiku. So I think we should have one. Well, let's see. Name a subject, and I'll, from memory, try to think of a good haiku on that subject. I think we should possibly have the one that inspires the title of your book, Seeds from a Birch birch Tree. So give me that haiku and tell me the story behind it. And let's sort of dive into it so that we can feel the complexity, even though it's a short poem, and the beauty of it. Yeah, that's a wonderful poem. That poem was written by a woman named Sister Benedicta. Andrea Sender was her birth name. And the poem is, Inside Our Chapel with Beings of Wood and Stone, Seeds from a Birch Tree. I'll read it again. Inside Our Chapel with Beings of Wood and Stone, Seeds from a Birch Tree. And in the book I wrote, the scene is simple. Through the door of the chapel, the seeds of a birch tree have blown, scattering across the floor. Above and all around them are the holy figures of a convent chapel, a place of prayer and contemplation. And so that's the scene. But we've got sort of two worlds meeting, haven't we? We've got the natural world and a sort of eternal world inside the chapel. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the beauty of the poem. And a lot of classic haiku, you know, are about that collision between the temporal and the eternal. The fleeting beauty of the natural world is something that seems to have, you know, more durability, or at least adds nuance to that natural image. Sister Benedicta was an Episcopal nun. She was born Andrea Sender, and her father was Ramon Jose Sender, who was one of the greatest Spanish novelists of the modern era. She was born in Spain. Her father ran afoul of uh, Franco. He had to escape over the mountains when the war started. And he believed incorrectly that his wife and children, we couldn't take with him at short notice because he was fleeing on foot, would not be harmed. And in fact, his wife and her infant, Andrea, were imprisoned together. And one day, a man whose advances 
Benedicta's mother had spurned some years before, took her out to the graveyard and shot her in the head. And uh, Sister Benedicta, you know, survived, of course. But it was reported in newspapers all over the world that she had stopped eating and had died. And Sister Benedicta died a couple of years ago. And she told me, you know, the year she died that she had to send a correction to yet another major newspaper who had, in some retrospective of the war, had told the story again incorrectly and said she had died. In fact, she did survive. She became an Episcopal nun. I mean, I think these people who choose cloistered lifestyles like that, you know, in Catholic traditions, sometimes, you know, it's a family tradition that people become nuns or priests or whatever. But in a lot of traditions, really, it tends to draw people who have had sad lives or who have been thrust, I think, by circumstances into asking big, big questions. And so this chapel that Sister Benedicta is talking about was at the convent of St. Helena in Valesgate, New York. And it was a very narrow, long place with stalls where the nuns would gather together to sing the monastic hours, the monastic office, you know, at intervals throughout the day. I think it maybe eventually they got air conditioning, but a lot of times in the, especially in the springtime, you know, the doors would be open. And on one of those days, the seeds from a birch tree blew into the chapel and lay on the floor there around at the feet of these statues of various saints. So how did you start your relationship with haiku? You know, I always loved walking and I'd always loved poetry. Even as a young boy, I would go out for very long walks, often in the middle of the night. And I was very much dazzled by the beauty of nature. Always was. But I didn't have any real way to express that. I discovered the romantic poets, you know, on my parents' bookshelf, you know, from their college courses they had taken at liberal arts colleges when I was about 13 or 14. You know, they had basically a complete course in the romantics. And I read all of romantic poetry, literally every word of it. And I think by the time I was 14 or 15, you know, I was pretty well schooled, you know, in English poetry. Began to write some poetry of my own, but it wasn't until I was about 18 or 19 that I discovered haiku. I was playing tennis one day and my girlfriend showed up in the stands. I was just finishing a match. She had this flat little package wrapped in brown paper on her lap. And at the end of the match, she gave me the, you know, this gift. And she said, these reminded me of you. And she handed me this little package. I opened it up and it contained a book called 100 Famous Haiku Translated from the Japanese. And I opened it up to a poem by one of the great haiku poets, Kobayashi Isa. And it said, I'm quoting it from memory, so I hope I'm getting it just right. But it said, beginning of spring, the perfect simplicity of a yellow sky. Beginning of spring the perfect simplicity of a yellow sky. And at that moment, I looked up. The tennis courts were on a hill in northwest Atlanta, Georgia. You know, I looked up and I could look down and see a a fairly long, broad, flat swath of northwest Atlanta. You know, the leaves were green and the Chattahoochee River was sort of snaking off, you know, at a distance and a gap between the trees. And the sky was that precise color. It had a yellow tinge. It was right at the end of day, and there weren't any clouds in the sky, and the sun was beginning to go down, but it hadn't yet taken on that red tinge that it gets as it sets, and it was yellow. And the whole sky was, for just those few minutes, a very, very pale yellow color, color of spring. And I was hooked. I read that. I took the book home that night, and I think I read every poem in it. I got up the next morning. I read it again. And I began carrying that book with me everywhere I went. When I was in college, it traveled with me in my backpack every day. I didn't write any haiku right away. I was very much in love with the art form, but I really didn't sort of know. I didn't have a teacher and it didn't occur to me really, I think at that time, that didn't really need a teacher of haiku, right? I needed an opportunity to write haiku. That's what a good haiku teacher does, just provide that opportunity. So one day, one morning, I was on my way to class. It was in the autumn. And I passed by a post where a blue morning glory was growing. And I stopped and I looked at it and somehow Haiku had given me new eyes. I'd always loved morning glories, but I had never looked at a morning glory in quite the way I did that morning. I looked at it 
It was like a little piece of the sky right at eye level. And I suddenly thought, oh, this is a haiku. And so I pulled out the book. There were blank pages at the end. And I sat down on a rock and I took out a pencil and I started writing, counting on my fingers, 575. And I wrote probably 20 different attempts, none of which were any good, to capture the essence of this particular moment with this morning glory. It's life force, right? Just as beauty. The fact that it seemed to be looking back at me, that it seemed really alive in a way that I, I couldn't articulate, except maybe through a haiku. So anyway, after that, I was hooked. I graduated from the university four years later, but with a degree in English literature, but my real degree was in haiku. I read everything in the library about Japanese literature, the Zen philosophy, you know, various things about Asian philosophy. And I learned a lot that way too. But really, it was by writing haiku directly from life that I learned. 20 years later, I was walking down a street in Manhattan. And I had been trying to write that Mountain Morning Glory poem, that first poem, for like 20 years. Couldn't do it. <laughs> Probably written thousands of Morning Glory poems in an attempt to capture what I had seen. I could not get it. It was so frustrating. In the meantime, I'd written a lot of articles on haiku. I'd published a lot of haiku. I'd become the vice president of the Haiku Society of America. Hadn't started teaching yet, but I, you know, I had a lot of uh, haiku creds, as it were. But that poem, that, the one that got away just stuck in my craw. I could not write it. And then one day I was walking down Upper Broadway on the Upper West Side of Mount Manhattan, and I looked, and there was a greeting card store. And in the window behind the glass was a black and white Japanese sumi painting of a morning glory. It wasn't even color. It wasn't even blue. And I looked at it, and I thought, oh. And I pulled out my notebook and I wrote, The Morning Glory, a trumpet that plays nothing but the color blue. Wow. Can we have it again, please? The Morning Glory, a trumpet that plays nothing but the color blue. And then finally, I was out of my misery. <laughs> After all those years, I came home and I told my wife I did it. Finally, you know, that was it. That was what I saw. And did the haiku take you to the Zen monastery? Well, it kind of did. You know, a lot of things happened right around that time. When I was 19 years old, I, typical 19-year-old experience, I had a girlfriend who I thought I was going to be with forever and, you know, deeply in love with. And the relationship upended suddenly. She broke up with me. And, you know, it was one of those things where, what a gift that was in retrospect. It really threw me into kind of a spiritual crisis, questioning a lot of things about my life. And, you know, I spent as much time as I spent walking every day. I think it probably doubled after that. I just needed to be alone in a kind of a state of contemplation. And I think by midsummer of like 1977, I was walking obsessively, like maybe 10 or 12 miles a day. I think it was like a reset, really. Something that modern people don't typically do, but, you know, it exists within us as a potential to experience the rhythm of walking and to let that rhythm sort of reset us, you know, spiritually, physically, metabolically, hormonally, in every way. It culminated one night with an experience that really changed me and set me on a completely different course in life. I was reading a book. It was a book on Asian philosophy, and I came to a passage, and I looked up from the book, and I... Everything disappeared. The whole world disappeared. You know, and I, I felt myself sort of, you know, if I, if I were trying to put it into words, I guess I would say that I felt myself hurtling at a, you know, an immense velocity towards the pinprick of light somewhere way off in the distance. And I remember thinking, my last thought was, oh, I can go there and then everything is over forever. You know, just this is it. Or I can come back and I have to decide. But there was no decision, really, because the next thing I knew, I was standing, and their decision was automatic. I think in Buddhism, they call it uh, the bodhisattva vow, right? The decision to re keep returning to the world over and over again for the sake of other beings. I, I, nowadays, I don't interpret that, you know, religiously or, quote, buddhologically or theologically. I think of it in ecological terms, right? That we're born into this world, we belong to this world, and the point is not to escape from it. But it did seem in that moment as if there was a possibility of literally, you know, leaving everything behind permanently, more than just physical death, but like, you know, the death of karma or whatever you want to call it. 
But the next thing I knew, I was standing in front of the mirror looking at somebody who was weeping. And I didn't even know who that person was. And then gradually, you know, I realized that I was looking at myself. So I was filled with something that I wouldn't even, I, I couldn't even begin to describe. I don't even have the words for it even now, all these years later. It's not something I even think about on a day-to-day basis. It's a long time ago. But I went out walking under the stars and walked until dawn that night. And then for the next two or three weeks, I think, I was in an altered state that seemed to me was probably the original state of mind that our ancestors occupied all the time. In any case, that was over after about two weeks. And then that's when my real spiritual journey started because I got spit out the other side of the experience. Experiences like that can't last. And then I went on a quest and I, I had been reading a book on Zen when that experience happened. So I thought, well, that's the direction I have to go in. So I was very driven. I had really desperate to reclaim that sort of state of mind. So I went to study Zen. So the way our ancestors used to live, explain that to me. You know, civilization, as we know it, depending on how you count it, when you mark the start of civilization, does it begin with agriculture? Does it begin with organized city-states? Some people will say 5,000. Other people will say, well, really, the, you know, the civilization was already getting started 10,000 years ago as people were beginning to cohere into groups and practice uh, horticulture together. Before that, our Paleolithic ancestors, sort of like the most recent version of ourselves as hominids, those people lived very, very close to the land, like as the land, right? I'm not sure they even made much of a distinction between their consciousness and the consciousness of the things around them. Uh, They lived in a very animistic universe where everything around them was alive, where they experienced the earth as being alive. You know, when they began to create culture and art, They drew paintings on cave walls of animals, very rarely even depicted themselves, right? It was the world around them that was important, from which they took the the meaning of their lives and their identity. They were some kind of a being, but I'm not even sure they really kind of knew what kind of being they were. I don't think they had necessarily a category for it. The animals that they saw were their kin, and they were blessed by those animals, fed by those animals, inspired by them, given wisdom by them, and teachings by them. And those people lived by a very simple rhythm of the rising and setting of the sun. They didn't accumulate surpluses of any kind because really only what they could carry was valuable to them. And they didn't need much. What they had was culture. What they had was joy. What they had was an intimate, inspired connection with the natural world in the sense that the world beneath their feet, the dirt beneath their feet was their mother, right? And that they didn't really come and go from that world, but we're always in it. And so what you're sort of saying is that almost by getting in contact with nature through haiku and this walking for long distances, you sort of got back in touch with the world around you and back into a more human rhythm rather than a civilized rhythm. Yeah, I don't really take any credit for it, though. I I think it was like a glitch. You know, all these years later, you know, I stopped thinking about this experience. I was obsessed by it all during my years of Zen, trying to replicate it or reproduce it. You know, as I've grown older, I think I've gotten a little wiser about this. Can you make experiences like that happen? I'm not sure you can. There are spiritual technologies that claim like Zen and Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, Hesychasm, you know, in the uh, Christian Orthodox tradition that claim to be able to produce it. But I, I don't know that that's really true. I think that there are certain circumstances where a human being can recover a little glimpse of what it was like for our ancestors to live in an intimate daily connection with the natural world and to experience a continuity or a lack of discontinuity between the self and the world around us. I think the haiku poetry is very much trends in the direction of animism, but not an objective animism like you find in a lot of writings about animism these days, not a studied animism, not an animism that says, you know, the whole world is alive and everything is alive, like some sort of, you know, shamanistic joy fest or whatever. And animism, an immersive animism where we experience our own life within nature. We become embodied and enlivened by our contact with nature. We begin to experience in certain moments a kind of a breakdown of the boundary between self 
and what we have, at least in the West, called the other, which is basically nature. You know, there's a kind of a Cartesian duality in Western thought between the self and nature. So if somebody is sort of thinking, I think I would like to get more in contact with nature, that it doesn't matter if your haikus are not award-winning haikus. Of course not. But they would like to start a practice like I've started. What practical advice would you give them? You know, a couple of things. One is to begin to keep a haiku diary, which can be any old notebook, where you write down your impressions. And you can carry it with you. That's always a good idea to have something that's fairly portable and carry it around with you. And you can either pause at moments during the day when the idea for a haiku comes to you or an experience, you have an experience that seems like it can be rendered in haiku, take out your notebook and write a haiku. Or you can only write down the impressions that you have in that moment and then wait until you get home later on that day and in a moment of of reflection or tranquility, you know, begin to craft your poem, right, in in a more relaxed, deliberate sort of way. Uh, These are the two basic ways of writing haiku, either on-the-spot composition right there as it's happening, or to take notes and then to write it later on. Basically, you know, romantic poetry was based on this idea as well. The famous definition of poetry by, uh, was it Wordsworth or Coleridge? I can't remember. They both wrote the preface to Lyrical Ballads, the first great work of romantic poetry, but they defined poetry in two ways as the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotion and as emotion reflected in tranquility. Meaning that, you know, a poem could appear spontaneously as a spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling, or it could be a reflection that one engaged in at a later time, right? You be a memory of the overflow of emotion. The other thing is to become part of a group. There are lots and lots of haiku groups on Facebook, right? Just type in haiku into Facebook and it'll take you to some haiku groups. Uh, you don't necessarily get a lot of instruction there or anything like that. And there, there's some good haiku and some bad haiku, but there are a lot of haiku. And there are a lot of people to encourage you to write haiku. So it's a good place to start. If a person really wants a haiku community to learn haiku in a group, as it's been traditionally done, there are a few options that I offer that are based on the Japanese model of learning haiku. One is I sponsor a monthly haiku challenge through tricycle.com. I was the uh, senior editor of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, for some years, and I'm now a contributing editor to the magazine and its haiku columnist. So every month, at the beginning of the month, I post a haiku challenge. I give a season word, and everyone writes on that season word. Season word for last month was barefoot. For this month, it's lotus. And so people submit poems online. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. People submit hundreds and hundreds of poems, sometimes thousands. And I go through them at the end of the month and choose one poem as the winner and two honorable mentions, and then I write an essay about them. There's also a haiku tip that I publish with each new challenge. So, for instance, this month, the season word is Lotus, and I posted a haiku tip at the beginning of the month about recovering the spirit of play in haiku poetry, that haiku poetry originated as a kind of a playful art form, a collaborative art form. And and in recent days, with you know the proliferation of haiku over the internet, it's sort of beginning to go back to formula and recapture that spirit. So I encourage people to be very playful and and experimenting with their poems. So that's one way to do it. Another is I teach a weekly haiku challenge class by subscription that does cost money on Facebook. So it's a closed group. People subscribe. Every Monday, I post a season word, and all of the poets in this group begin writing haiku on them. They post their haiku in the comments. Thursday at midnight is the cutoff, and beginning on Thursday, myself and one of my fellow editors will begin combing through the poems for the best poems, and then we will write essay-length commentaries on anywhere from 10 to 25 poems, so several thousand words of writing. And then post them the following week, you know, with the results before posting the new challenge. And so people 
in this group get to see really good haiku every week. And a person who's been in this group for two or three months, it's very unlikely they wouldn't have, by that point, had one of their poems chosen for commentary, because you learn by looking at good haiku. We only work through positive reinforcement. There is no critique. No one will ever tell you in the tricycle challenges or in the weekly challenge group that you've written a bad haiku. No one will ever critique your haiku. No one will ever say, this is what's wrong with it. We only choose the poems that work. And we write about those. The same, you know, at the end of the month, we have uh, in this group a thing called a kukai or haiku meeting, where the members all submit two or three poems of their own choosing anonymously. These are posted. And then the members go through and they like and offer comments on the poems, the five poems that they thought were the best. But they only say what they like about them. There's no critique. People learn best in this way. People learn through positive example. Haiku is mimetic. You read good haiku and you begin to write good haiku by reading good haiku. Then finally, I also teach a year-long masterclass in haiku, which is 52 lessons and exercises. And I think I'm in my fifth year of working with that now. I work with a few hundred poets in that format. And there's also a course on tricycle.org, a tricycle course called Learn to Write Haiku, Mastering the Ancient Art of Serious Play. And that's a six-week video course that people can take. So uh, this is really deep idea from your book, Grasping Mind, No Haiku, Let Go and Inspiration Comes. That's right. Yeah. So explain that to me. Well, I mean, honestly, you know, in the 25 years since I wrote the first edition of Seeds from a Birch Tree, I've revised my approach to haiku in one respect. And that is that I used to, you know, back in the 90s, when I first started teaching, I used to emphasize going out and writing haiku directly from life. But then, you know, as I took a much deeper dive into Japanese haiku and its history, in the intervening years, I discovered that a great many of the best haiku were written purely from imagination, sometimes about things that didn't even happen. Some of the most famous examples are from Basho, who's considered kind of the quote, father of haiku, right? Basho took a journey in the uh, 17th century to the north of Japan and recorded his journey in haiku and prose in a little book called The Narrow Road to the Deep North. It's his masterpiece. It's right one of the most famous works of Japanese literature. He writes about his experiences and he writes haiku about his experiences. Well, he traveled with this fellow haiku poet named Sora Sora also kept a diary, and when Sora's diary was discovered, they realized that Basho had made up certain <laughs> chapters in their road to the deep north, written haiku about things he didn't actually see and about places he didn't actually visit, but he knew about. And the reason for this was that he wasn't a photographer off in the countryside whose object was to capture, you know, through photorealism, you know, a precise portrait of what he had seen or experienced. And he wasn't a travel diarist necessarily, you know, going out on assignment and, you know, writing about this restaurant or whatever. He was an artist, a poet, a writer. And he was trying to capture a deeper truth about human life. And so where reality didn't oblige him, he created a poem that expressed what needed to be said at that particular point in the book. And the result is truly a masterpiece. So, you know, there's an art to haiku. Is It's not just a, you know, a, an exercise in awareness, an awareness practice, like a, a form of mindfulness. It's also a poetic art. And so our imaginations and our temperament, our thoughts, our feelings come into play. So nowadays, I'm much more likely to encourage people to not just sort of be in the moment, let go, be in the moment, and let the moment write itself, but also to leave themselves open to the possibility that there may be something within themselves that needs to come out and express itself in haiku. So in a moment, we're going to look at a letter from one of our listeners, and we'll be doing that in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits.
So there are many ways to get involved in The Meaningful Life. You can join our supporters group. You can get our monthly, sorry, bi-monthly newsletter, which is about the sort of things that are happening on this programme, and also an article that I write on something normally psychological that will be helpful. And you can also, at this website, www.andrewgmarshall.com, send in a letter Go down on the the page and you'll find participate in the programme. And I will find one of my witnesses to help you think about it. And here is the letter we've got this time. Am I having a long, dark night of the soul or am I just depressed? For the last few years, I seem to have been drifting. My job is okay, but I'm getting less and less out of it. My wife and I get on okay but I'm aware we have a tendency to dive into our own different worlds. She plays games on her phone and I read. We can get a bit snappy sometimes, but what couple isn't after 35 years together? I'm heading towards 60, and although I'm cool with that, it does feel like a landmark. I sort of had a meditation practice, but I can go for a couple of weeks without getting round to it and then have a chunk of time when I'm reliable. I used to go on retreats, but somehow it just feels like too much of an effort. It's just like I'm just marking time. So, Clark, your thoughts on this? It's interesting because there's this feeling that everything is okay, but. Like if I had to say, you know, read this letter and say, you know, what's the hinge of it? Like what's happening here? Everything is okay, but. Mm. And this is such a, I think, an almost universal experience for people. So, you know, people live long, longer now. Life expectancy is more than doubled since the Industrial Revolution. Recently, I went to my doctor because I had a vitamin D deficiency. And I said, well, what can I do about this? And he says, well, as you get older, your, your skin doesn't take in vitamin D like it used to. And this was never an issue in previous centuries. People didn't live long enough to get a vitamin D deficiency. So he says, congratulations, you've lived long enough to get a vitamin D deficiency. <laughs> so when you live to 60 nowadays, more than half of your life is over. And for some people, more than two thirds of your life is probably over. You know, many people don't live to 90. And so it's a time, I think, of reckoning. You know, when we begin to sort of take stock of our lives and we begin to see what's happened in them and what hasn't happened in them, you know, we begin to take stock of our health, our relationships, our careers, things like that. We begin to think also of like what might become of us, you know, in our remaining years, what do we have to look forward to. Is it a slow decline into old age sickness and death, three realities that sent the Buddha off into the jungle to contemplate the meaning of life, to try to find a meaningful life? I think that 60 for a lot of people is when they first begin to think about the meaningful life, where they say to themselves, it does my life have meaning? What is the meaning of my life? And what I love about this letter is that this is a person who's like, has abstracted the problem from himself and said, what is the meaning of life? Saying, what is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of my life? That question is such a gift because every life does have meaning and our lives do have meaning. And a lot of times, you know, I I feel like it's a matter, you know, that, that sort of taking stock, it can't just be the things that haven't happened, but the things that have. And to say, you know, what is good in a life and to begin to build off of that. I was very struck about what he said about meditation. You know, I was a meditation teacher many years ago. I was a Zen priest and a Zen teacher at a temple in Manhattan in the 1980s. When I left the Zen monasticism behind, I decided not to be a Zen teacher and to lead a more ordinary life, to get married, have kids, and write books and so forth and so on. One of the first books I wrote was a book called Meditation Without Gurus, originally published under the title The Wooden Bowl. And I wrote it because in my experiences in teaching Zen, I so often encountered this melancholy feeling that people had that basically expressed itself in statements like, if I meditated more, I would be happier. If only I could discipline myself or could reorganize my life in such a way that, you know, I could meditate in this way or that way or more consistently or whatever, I could get my life on track. 
And I think people oftentimes speak of meditation, you know, with this sort of tinge of melancholy. So I wrote this book specifically to address this issue. And I guess if I had to sum up the theme of the book, it would have been to meditate in the life you have, with the life you have. Oftentimes, for people, that means scaling things back. These meditative traditions that have come to us from the various traditions of the world were all designed for monastics. None of them were designed for lay people. Now, that's really, it's important to let that sink in. Mm. These are practices that were developed for monastic people living in monastic communities where everything about their lifestyle Everything about the place that they lived, the schedule they lived by, was organized around giving them the opportunity to spend a lot of time in meditation and or prayer. And so, in order to meditate as a layperson with a job and a family and responsibilities and so forth, you need a different approach to the practice. So, there's a great story. There was a book years ago, I can't remember now the author, I'm going to ask his forgiveness in advance, but I remember the title of the book because it's so memorable, Tying Rocks to Clouds, (laughs) Tying Rocks to Clouds. It was basically his version of my meetings with remarkable men, you know. He went around and spoke to spiritual teachers all over the world and asked them for advice. And he tells an amazing story in that book. He's, he is, I think, during the, probably the late 1960s or early 70s, he went, like a lot of people during that time, to Asia, to Nepal, to study meditation. And he was gathered together with several hundred other people on this little hell, idyllic hillside, receiving an empowerment to say a particular mantra from this little Tibetan Lama who came along with his little vase full of holy nectar and his little bell and everything. And people would, you know, commit to saying a certain number of mantras a day. And so he said it was like a bidding war. It got, became absurd. So if I would say, hundred mantras a day, there's a, a thousand mantras a day, 10,000 mantras a day, right? This it was crazy. And the little monk would, the little repoche, you know, uh, would go along and he would smile and tap the person on the head with a little vase of holy nectar and bless them and empower them, basically authorize them or sponsor them, bless them in the practice of this mantra. The Lama gets to him and he says, one mantra a day. And the little Lama looks at him and says, one mantra a day? And he says, one mantra a day. And the, the Lama smiles and laughs, taps him on the head with the little vase and goes on. So I read this story and I got very curious. I didn't know the guy at this time. So I figured out, I called my publisher who called his publisher. I got his phone number. I called him up and I said, I got one question for you. It says, or two questions. How many of those people you were with on that hillside do you think actually made good on their vows? And he says, well, probably not many, probably not, maybe a few, maybe a few. And I said, and what about you? Have you said your one mantra a day? He says, I sure have all these years. I said, and what did that mean to you? He said, everything, right? And what happens if you scale back your expectations for meditation is that you begin to build and you find that. You may start with one mantra. You may start with one minute of meditation or five minutes of meditation or or a few seconds of meditation. And if you do it like that every day, it's really the regularity of it that matters. It's not the amount of time. It's not how well you do it. It's really nothing but showing up. And the more you show up, the more your body and your spirit and your, your mind, everything begins to reorganize itself in subtle ways around that moment. And it becomes a precious holy moment. It can be the moment right before you fall asleep at night or the first moment when you wake up in the morning. I wake up in the morning and I grab my beads and say my little medieval Hail Mary mantra, say 150 of them when I wake up in the morning. And it's very slow. Ave, gracia, plena, dominus, dick. It's 150 times. That's it. That's my rule. And in a way, a haiku is a very small moment and it can build from there. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I tell people when they start writing haiku, I say, you know, sit down, write as many bad haiku as you possibly can in five minutes. Write bad haiku, right? Because if I tell them to write good haiku, they'll just sit there staring at the page for five minutes. If I tell them to write bad haiku, suddenly the bar is lowered. It's the same principle. But just write some 575 poems. And it works like a charm. What happens is people begin to do that. They begin to play and experiment and have fun and enjoy themselves. They do it, you know, once a day or one, a few times a week. And within, say, a month or so, they're writing me back and they're saying, you know, I think I've written some good ones, right? And I'd like to show them to you. Or I'd like to share them or I'd like to, you know, who should I share them with? How do I share them? So I'd just like to go back very briefly to our letter. Am I having a long night of the soul or am I just depressed? I think it possibly could be both of those things, that once we lose touch with our own lives, we do become depressed. And how do you become less depressed? Generally, people tend to think, well, what I need to do is have more good experiences. Actually, what I think you need to do is get in contact with all of your experiences, stop dividing them into good and bad, and just living a little bit deeper in those moments. Because I'm sure your job is not okay. I'm sure your job is a mixture of really inspiring and mind-numbing. And the same with your marriage. It's full of moments of tenderness and full of moments of boredom. And somehow, if we go into each of those moments a little bit more, and we're not sort of minimizing the things that are not working and we're not diving into the things that are working, we're going to have this sort of meh sort of kind of thing. So I think I want you to connect yourself deeper with your life. I hope that was helpful. So I said I would reflect on how writing haiku for a year has changed me and I would say, I think I've written down three things. First is, I certainly notice little things more. And you're right, the world is alive more. I pulled out of your book a quote, which I think is rather beautiful. We are born into the world where everything is alive. We are not separate from the world. And I think, you know, when I, I read that in your book, I felt that, you know, haiku made that true for me. And the other thing that I found sort of really interesting is I became more connected to my corner of the city I live in, which is Berlin. And weirdly enough, when I went off to Mexico around Christmas time, despite the fact that, I mean, I saw some absolutely wonderful nature there, I didn't actually feel any desire to write any haikus. There was something about watching my own patch change I nearly always go to a set of allotments. They call them Schwebergarten here in uh, Germany. And just watching people's gardens through the year is sort of half of my inspiration. So that's the impact it's had on me. So thank you for that, Clark. Well, you're quite welcome. Uh, you know, I noticed uh, you sent me some of your June haiku, and I couldn't help but notice that you had a really good day on Wednesday, the 21st of June. Do you mind if I read a few of those haiku? Not at all. Through open windows, strands of piano practice, the sound of summer. I'll read that one again. Through open windows, the strands of piano practice, the sound of summer. The poetry of that is very beautiful with its repeated sounds, its repeated P and S sounds. And the image itself is very beautiful. I love the idea that you're not listening to a finished composition, but really uh, practice, right? Uh, maybe someone practicing a song or even practicing scales. But there's a re very relaxed, beautiful, open, right? The open windows are, I think, are, are both to be taken literally, but also sort of an opening of the soul, opening of the portals of the senses to take all of this in. The sound of summer. Beautiful poem. Then open courtyard doors, a jungle of green calling, fresh from summer rain, fresh from summer rain. What a wonderful, wonderful last line. I love this one too. Lazy traffic hums, a distant motorcycle, it's summer again. Lazy traffic hums, a distant motorcycle, it's summer again. 
that 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 image of a distant motorcycle is is so distinct, right? People can conjure that up in their memory. Notice how I think for your listeners to notice how a haiku can really call to mind certain moments of life for the reader, so that they come alive in the imagination as we read them. And then everyone outside enjoying their balconies, summer on the street. Everyone outside enjoying their balconies, summer on the street. A wonderful poem. I love the communal nature of that. You know, the people, we live lives that are separate but together, you know, especially in modern urban settings. And there's a kind of a joy. I remember, you know, seeing a wonderful video during the pandemic of a woman opera singer singing from her balcony in Italy, in Rome, I believe, right? Beautiful, very inspiring. And people coming out to listen. Couldn't go to the opera, but they could go out on their balconies. When you live in a city, you love your balcony. Yeah. So thank you for being a witness today on The Meaningful Life. I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful is recognizing the life around me and interacting with the life around me. Haiku poet is the way I do that. I do that with my family. I have pets who I uh, spend time with outdoors and nature every day. I go outdoors to write haiku. I do work in the yard. But basically, I live in a house in the woods uh, surrounded by all kinds of plants and animals. The feeling that uh, I have of not being alone is what gives meaning to my life. The fact that, that my life alone doesn't have any meaning that is separate from the life around me, but it is informed by and given a deeper meaning by the life that I interact with. And so I would say that, only that. So we're going to have to end here, unless you are one of the supporters of The Meaningful Life, because we're going to continue our conversation. We're going to talk about something, once again, of the rhythm of our ancestors. And this is the hour of the wolf waking in the middle of the night. So we'll be talking about that in a moment. If you'd like to hear that conversation, you can hear the bonus material by subscribing directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material that way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.